So we are in Joel chapters 1 and 2. This morning, if you have that pew Bible, that is on page 760. Again, please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all of you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, a pow powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them.
but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the, nation, among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame.
And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises that you give to us. God, as we come now to sit under your word, God, to receive from you what you would have for us, we ask that you would show us your glory and God, that you would show us Christ, that on this Christmas morning, we would see the glory of the incarnation, the glory of the cross, even through this strange, uh, far away feeling text here in Joel. Help us to see who you are, God, that you are consistent. You are unchanging. You are the God who, who loves us. May we know you more through the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the first half of the 1890s, a severe drought struck the Great Plains and the American West. 30 years later, in the late 20s, people seemed, had seemed to forget uh, what had happened. They said, oh, that won't happen again. Then in 1929, Wall Street crashed. The Great Depression began in 1930. And folks in Boyce City, Oklahoma, in the panhandle of Oklahoma, they thought, well, those problems are far off in Washington, right? Those are far off happening in, on Wall Street. Right? These things are not near us. Then on January 21st, 1932, a 10,000-foot high dust storm with 60-mile-an-hour winds that was 200 miles wide came upon them. These came to be known as black blizzards. Makes you a little thankful for what we've been experiencing the last few days. This went on for nearly 10 years. Crops were devastated. Livestock devastated. People's lives devastated. Many young children died from dust pneumonia. It's a heartbreaking, heartbreaking to see these images and hear these stories. In 1934, there was an invasion of jackrabbits. They ate everything in sight, even eating the bark off of posts, fence posts. In 1938, four years later, after much of the land was restored and the drought was almost over, there was a grasshopper invasion that blacked out the sun and again, ate everything in sight. 
And the people thought that the end of the world was coming. They thought that this was the judgment of God, that they were reaping the whirlwind, as we saw several weeks ago in Hosea chapter 8, verse 7. Reaping the whirlwind, that is the title of part two of Ken Burns' documentary on the Dust Bowl. If you have not yet seen it, I would highly recommend watching it. One of the common themes that they keep saying is, if it rains, right? If it rains, there was this assumption that next year would be better. If only it would rain, then things will change and they will turn around. Well, finally, almost 10 years later, by the end of 1939, the Dust Bowl was reduced to about one-fifth of its previous size, and the rain started to fall, and finally, there was restoration. Finally, those who stuck it out, their lives started to get back to some semblance of normal. It's fascinating. This documentary was made in 2012. It's only 10 years later, so I'm assuming several of these people who are in the documentary are still living. Uh, those who experienced these things as children, this plague of biblical proportions, drought, locust invasions. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like this text in Joel 1 and 2 that we are going to dive into here this morning. If you're visiting with us, we started a series in October on the Minor Prophets. We have preached through Hosea and Amos so far. We're doing this because we believe that the Minor Prophets are a much neglected and much misunderstood part of Scripture. We want to familiarize ourselves with them. We want to better understand these parts of Scripture. We want to see how they point us to Christ and how we can apply them to our lives today. And maybe you're thinking, what on earth does this passage here about locust plagues and drought and all this craziness, what does this have to do with Christmas? Couldn't you guys have just paused for a week and like preached something happy from Matthew or Luke? Well, sit tight. I promise that we'll get there. But first, we do need to to talk briefly about Joel. There are many similar themes in Joel that we have already seen in Hosea and Amos. Judgment, restoration, the mercy of God, the day of the Lord, a plea to return to the Lord. Those are all things that are consistent, especially in these three books. There's a lot of uncertainty about Joel, who he was, who his father was, as we see listed there in verse 1-1. There are no other mentions of him anywhere else. He's quoted in Acts chapter 2, which we'll see, but there is nowhere else in the Old Testament, uh, so we don't really know any information about him. The date of Joel is also uncertain. Uh, There's a lot of debate whether Joel is pre-exilic, so before Israel and Judah went into exile, or post-exilic. I think it's earlier uh, rather than later for two reasons. Uh, The first is that Joel, as we see in our Bibles, it's placed between Hosea and Amos. That was the order in the Hebrew Bible. Um, So it's not a guarantee that that's the date, uh, just because that's where it is placed. But that's one indication. The second indication is that the enemy nations that are mentioned in chapter 3, which James will be looking at next week, uh, are earlier nations. Assyria and Babylon, who uh, are mentioned a lot in, in the Minor Prophets, who would be coming to take the people into exile, 
there's no mention of them in Joel. So it's kind of strange if, if this is later uh, that those nations wouldn't be mentioned. So I'm, I'm voting for an earlier date. Um, but really, at the end of the day, it doesn't, uh, the dating of, of Joel, uh, even who Joel was, uh, doesn't really impact our interpretation. The occasion, as is pretty obvious after, after what we've just read, the, the, the reason that Joel is written is this locust invasion, this locust plague. And then lastly, the audience of Joel is the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, from here on out, the rest of the minor prophets, as we go from Micah to Malachi, are going to be addressed to the southern kingdom of Judah. We looked at Hosea and Amos, who are both addressed to uh, the northern kingdom before the northern kingdom went into exile. Now we're going to be looking at uh, kind of focusing on the southern kingdom of Judah. And each week as we've been going through the minor prophets, we've been trying to ask the question, what does this have to do with us today as God's people? So if you kind of want a main idea here, a, a thesis statement, if you're taking notes, it is this. As God's new covenant people, we must see the hope of Old Testament Israel fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus and live with the same longing for his return at the second coming. Say that one more time. And this, again, this kind of applies generally, I think, to all of the prophets, but it's kind of what Joel is pointing at here. As God's new covenant people, we must see the hope of Old Testament Israel fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ and live with the same longing for his return at the second coming. This is very fitting for this season of Advent and Christmas. We've been talking about this a lot for the past several weeks, uh, and we'll get to, to that, that again. But first, let's look at our text here in Joel. If you're taking notes, there are three sections, three sections headed by five R words. First section is readiness, readiness. Second section is return and repentance, return and repentance. And then third and finally, we're going to look at restoration and reversal. So first, let's look at how we must be ready to meet the Lord. We're going to see that in chapter 1, 1 through 2, 11. Another word you could add here if you want. It kind of breaks up my R theme, but the word preparation, right? Readiness and preparation. Maybe you can write a lowercase p and a capital R so it kind of looks cool, right? Readiness and preparation. Now, this readiness and preparation that we see here is mostly outward. It's mostly this external uh, readiness and preparation. So why readiness? Well, as we've already mentioned, the occasion here is the locust plague. The locust plague, as Joel is prophesying, is presently going on. So there is this present readiness. There is a call from the Lord through Joel to prepare themselves to continue to face what they are presently facing and then what they will have to face in the future. The language here in verse 2 is very familiar to Hosea and Amos. Look with me at verse 2. Hear, hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the, the land. So the leaders are addressed here, and the people are addressed. They are reminded to listen to God and to his word. 
Then we see verse three, another command, tell, tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children, their children to another generation. In other words, remember, don't forget like those in the Dust Bowl who thought that another severe drought would not come, right? Tell that next generation so that they're prepared, so that they say, oh yeah, this could happen again, right? We're not immune to these things. We're not immune to God's judgment coming. Tell the next generation, remind them. Then we see this description in verse four of four types of locusts. It gets progressively worse through these four types of locusts until the destroying locusts eat everything. It's a picture of utter desolation here. And keep this description of locusts in mind because we're going to be coming back to this. Now notice in verses 5 through 12, these jarring imperatives. Verse 5, awake you drunkards and weep and wail all you drinkers of wine because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. It's addressed to those who were imbibing themselves, right? They're, they're drinking alcohol and they're, and they're, yeah, they're getting drunk, obviously drunkards, right? And it's saying, awake, wake up, because now this stuff is cut off. You're no longer going to be able to partake of these things because they are no more. God is taking them away from you. The destruction of the locusts is described in verses 6 and 7. They're like lion's teeth. And we see these things that, are, that happen in verse 7, these things that are laid waste. Pay attention to again to the vine and the fig tree. We're going to be seeing those themes throughout. Verse 8, lament like a young bride who has lost her husband. Verse 9 here is a picture of the worship of God being hindered because of the plague. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests and the ministers, they mourn. There's more destruction and mourning in verse 10. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns. And then notice this threefold, this, um, these, this pairing of these three items, the grain, the wine, and the oil. They're destroyed and dried up and they languish. Grain, wine, and oil, these are the things that people relied upon for survival, right? This is their food. This is, this is their livelihood. But these are also things that brought joy to the people. It's a picture of feasting. And all of this is reduced to nothing. Verse 11 and 12 contain an interesting wordplay. If you see the footnote there, if you have the ESV, it says in verse 11, be ashamed if you look at that footnote. Number two there, it says below, the Hebrew words for dry up and ashamed sound alike. So be ashamed, saying to the tillers of the soil and the vine dressers, because these things are cut off. The wheat and the barley are cut off. And then look at verse 12. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. So it's not just things happening in the field that's their very own lives their own gladness is dried up and so the word to be ashamed and to dry up sound similar the uh the word here for um ashamed is means to despair it's utter desperation so again their livelihoods 
are gone. They are in emotional distress to the very point of despair. I think it's fascinating, again, to see the parallels experienced by those in the Dust Bowl. Some people, after years and years of no crops, no money, they finally gave up. They packed up everything, and they moved off. Most of them went west to California. I wonder, for us, what is our response when hardship strikes? Do we prepare and ready ourselves to meet with God? Being here in corporate worship is a good place to start. This is a great place to meet with God. And when hardship strikes in your life, don't run and hide, right? Don't go off on your own and, and isolate yourselves. Come and be with God's people. Come and meet with God. This is the good place to start. Well, the rest of verse or, or chapter one, excuse me, is a call to worship God in a spirit of repentance. Look at verse 13. Notice the imperatives here. Put on sackcloth. Lament. Wail. These are instructions to the priests and the ministers. Verse 14. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and the inhabitants. Remember those who are called in verse 2 to hear from God. End of, end of verse 14. Cry out to the Lord. Then in verses 15 and 16, Joel mentions the day of the Lord. This is a major theme in this book. Alas, for the day of the Lord is near and is destruction from the Almighty. It comes. There is a certainty here with the day of the Lord. It's a call for readiness, a call for preparation in the midst of dire circumstances. We see again all of humanity is affected. The food is cut off before their eyes. Joy and gladness is cut off. Not only is humanity affected, the land is affected. Verse 17, the seed shrivels under the clods. The granaries are torn down. The grain has dried up. Verse 18, the animals are affected. The beasts groan. The herds of the cattle are perplexed. Again, this is widespread. This desolation and this destruction is impacting everything. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, is more emphasis on the day of the Lord. I just want us to notice verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11. Look at verses 1 and 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. This is the language of preparation for an invasion. We saw some of this language also in Hosea and Amos. This is this idea of blowing the trumpet is for a, an invading army coming, preparing themselves. Uh, verses 10 and 11 there. Uh, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, the stars withdraw their shining. Verse 11, the Lord utters his voice, he executes his word, the day of the Lord is great and very awesome, who can Endure it. This is, again, this picture of, of darkness and gloom. God's army coming. This is talking about the locusts coming in the darkness. But the key question here, which really transi transitions us into the center of this book, is at the end of verse 11. Who can endure it? 
you get the feeling here reading this, how much more can they take? If you've watched Ken Burns' documentary, The Dust Bowl, you're kind of watching it like, how, like, how can you stay, right? After years and years and years, like you're shoveling dust and dirt out from your front door. You're having to wipe down your table and your dishes every single day. Like how much more of this can you endure? And as we read this, we have to ask the same thing. Is there hope for these people? Is there any hope for restoration and renewal? Again, in the Dust Bowl documentary, there were a few mentions of people who had clung to their faith in God. It's not a very uh, prominent theme, which is kind of not surprising, but uh, they did highlight one family, uh, one mother who would sing hymns to her children. And this old lady now sitting here in the documentary, uh, 70 years later as an old woman recounting her mother's faith and even singing one of the songs and saying, I haven't sang this song for like, you know, 60 years or whatever. Uh, so it's encouraging to see that enduring nature of their faith. So there was an endurance and a future hope that stuck with those who experienced these things. Just as God's people were called to do in Joel's day. And just as we are called to do here today, we are to be a people who are ready, who are prepared to face whatever comes our way, not by sheer grit and self-determination, but through a deep reliance upon the Lord, a reliance that manifests itself in action. That's what we see in our second section. We must return to the Lord in repentance. We must return to the Lord in repentance. We see this in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And I think this really is the center and the heart of the book. Notice that opening phrase in verse 12. Yet even now. In other words, despite all that has been going on, God says, I am giving you another chance. We need to hear those words. Yet even now, right? Despite all that you have done, despite all the guilt and shame from your past, despite all the things that you try to cover up, yet even now, God says, return. It's a major theme in the minor prophets and really through all the prophets. Return. And how are they to return? Return to me with all your heart. It's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And we see then these outward displays. Fasting, weeping, mourning. But these things are not just to be purely external. Verse 13 is so glorious. Rend your hearts and not your garments. God says, I'm not primarily concerned with your external displays of mourning and repentance, though those things are still important. He says, bring me your hearts. Lay your hearts bare before me. Why? So God can stomp all over them in anger and wrath? No. Return, verse 13, return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. God will act consistently with his character. This great declaration here that God spoke to Moses in Exodus 34 after Moses received the new stone tablets following the golden calf incident. We saw this reminder in our assurance of pardon from Psalm 103. We need to constantly remind ourselves of this truth. It's so easy to project our ungracious, unmerciful, quick to anger experiences that we've had with others. Whether it's our parents, our spouse, our friends, it's easy to project those things onto God. But God is not like our parents or our spouse or our friends. He is unchanging. He's not swayed by human opinion. God is all about himself and his own glory, and yet he's not selfish and self-seeking in the way that we are tempted to be. Look at verse 14. Who knows? This is actually a great statement of hope. This is not a statement of uncertainty. Who knows whether he will turn, whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? God might turn and relent, and he just might leave a blessing behind him. And notice here what the blessing is and what its purpose is. A grain offering and a drink offering, which we saw in chapter one, had been cut off. Now God leaves the blessings of grain and wine for what? So that, God, so that God's people might offer those things back to him in praise and thanksgiving. Then verses 15 through 17 are again a call to worship as we've already seen in chapter 1 and then earlier in chapter 2. I just want us to notice here a couple important things in verse 17, which will help us transition into the third section. There's a call here for the priests and the ministers to weep and to cry out to God saying, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? There are two points of emphasis in this prayer. The first is the mercy of God. The cry here is to spare your people. God have mercy. Spare your people. Again, common theme throughout the prophets, the mercy of God despite the people's sin and rebellion. And then the second point of emphasis here is God's people not being mocked among the Gentiles or among the, the peoples, the nations. We see this several times throughout the Psalms, this theme of, um, we see it in Psalm 42, why should the nations say, where is their God? There are also two key places under Moses. The first is after the golden calf incident in Exodus chapter 32, and the second is after the people grumble and rebel against Moses and Aaron in Numbers 14, and they say, it would be better if we went back to Egypt. Even if we die there, right, it'd be better if we get to live in luxury and spend the rest of our days in Egypt. Let's appoint new leaders. We're done with you, Moses and Aaron. Let's go back to Egypt where we had it better off. 
In both of those cases, the Lord is saying he's going to destroy his people and Moses intercedes and he tells the Lord that if God destroys his people, then the nations, the Egyptians and the other nations, uh, where it says in Numbers 14, the nations who have heard of your fame, they will mock God and his people. They will say he brought them out of Egypt, but he's not strong enough to keep them. And they will, God and his people will become a mockery among the nations. So despite the sin and the rebellion of God's people, God will act to protect the glory of his name and the reputation of his people, not letting them be put to shame. Do we believe this? For all the fears and concerns that we might have about how Christians are treated in our culture today, are we concerned about it because we feel mistreated and because we are seeking some kind of vindication? Or are we concerned about God's name being dishonored among those who mistreat us? If I'm honest with myself, it's more often than not the former and not the latter. This is why a posture of humility among those who would hate and despise us is so important. We want them to see Christ. We want them to honor his name. We want them to see us willing to suffer for his namesake. If a fight to keep Christ in Christmas is only for the sake of tradition and not for the sake of the glory of God, then Christians need to zip it. That's all I'm going to say about that. Let's look now at our last section. We must live in light of the restoration and reversal that God has brought about. We must live in light of the restoration and reversal that God has brought about. Chapter 2, 18 to 32. This is such an incredible section. If you haven't, uh, if you didn't get a chance to read through this before, I, if you go home and look at anything, go home and read through 18 to 32. Look what God has done here in verses 18 to 20 to bring about reversal and restoration. Verse 18, the Lord became jealous for his land and he had pity on his people. Again, notice these, em these emphases that we saw earlier, that the land and the people, this desolation of the land, everything is dried up. The desolation of the people, right? Joy and gladness is dried up. God answered in verse 19. He said to his people, behold, I am sending you, look at this, grain, wine, and oil, the very things that were dried up before, and you will be satisfied. Not maybe you won't die, not maybe you'll barely eke it out, right, for the rest of your days. No, you will be satisfied. Joy and gladness will be restored. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Then look at verse 20. I will remove the northerner far from among you. This is speaking of the locust invasion. God is going to finally take away the locusts. Verses 21 through 24 is a reversal of the judgments that we previously saw. The judgment on animals on land, on people, uh, gladness and rejoicing 
will be restored. Look at verse 23. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. This rain is abundant. It pours down in, in abundance, the early and the latter rain as before. This is the thing that the people in the Dust Bowl so desperately needed for an entire decade. Rain to restore the land. Verse 24, then the threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. Notice that language, fullness and overflowing, again, of grain, wine, and oil. And then verse 25, which is probably the pinnacle of the book in terms of reversal and restoration. Remember chapter 1, verse 4, I told you to remember that. This list of, this, of the locust invasion and this increasing uh, desolation this, the, until there was total destruction. What do we see here in verse 25? I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. God's saying, I'm the one who brought the judgment, and I'm the one who's going to end it, and I'm going to restore to you everything that I took away from you. The language then in verse, verses 26 and 27 further reiterates the magnitude of this reversal. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. You shall praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. They will praise God. They will know him. And notice the last line of each of these verses repeated for emphasis. And my people shall never again be put to shame. The nations will no longer say, where is their God? Where is the God of Israel who brought them up out of Egypt, but wasn't able to sustain them? They will not say that. Now, is this something that we should expect in some utopian period here on earth? It doesn't seem to square with Jesus' description of the signs of the end, ends of the age in Matthew 24, 9, when he says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. This seems more likely to describe the end end when Jesus returns and judges the nations and makes all things new. So we think about, again, going back to the Dust Bowl, was the restoration of the farmland of the southern Great Plains in the 40s and the abundant wheat harvest that was restored, was this an actual total reversal that guaranteed that no other drought would ever come and that no plague would ever strike that region? Of course not, right? There's no guarantee. There's no guarantee in the here and now. A final end time reversal is needed. There is still this ultimate forward-looking hope. And that's the picture that we get in verses 28 to 32. Now, although Peter did quote this on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, most of these things we see here did not occur at Pentecost. Yes, God's spirit was poured out. And yes, those who called upon the name of the Lord were saved. But Acts 2 is most likely just the onset of this whole series of events 
that will eventually culminate at Christ's second coming. And while it's easy to be enthralled with this description of signs and wonders or dreams and visions and to be seeking after those things, I think the emphasis here is to be on our salvation. That's what verse 32 highlights. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It highlights here both our responsibility to call upon the Lord, to return to him in faith and repentance in heartfelt worship. And then it also highlights God's sovereign election and calling of us. Look at the end of verse 32. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Well, again, what does all of this have to do with Christmas? A whole lot, actually. Isn't what we've seen here in Joel 1 and 2 at the very heart of why the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us? Is this season not a yearly reminder to be ready, to be prepared? We spend so much time on the preparation of decorations and gifts and food. And for what? So that we can fill our fleshly desires? Or so that we can sing as we sing in the song, Joy to the World, let every heart prepare him room. That's to be the preparation, to rend our hearts and not our garments, to have our hearts prepared to receive Christ. It's also a reminder to return to the Lord, that God is gracious and merciful, that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that year after year, our God doesn't change. He welcomes us back through Jesus' sacrifice in our place. Paul Tripp in his New Morning Mercies devotional has some really helpful reminders of these truths in the days leading up to Christmas. He mentions Jesus' crucifixion and him crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Tripp says this moment, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, this moment really was the epicenter of the Christmas story. It was why Jesus came. It was why the angels rejoiced at his coming. He came to be the temporarily separated son so that we can be the eternally accepted children of God. Now that's a story worth celebrating. And so we do. We celebrate and we remember the greatest of reversals and restorations that God has brought about for us through Jesus. In the following day's devotional trip gives us this admonition. He says, look into that manger and see the one who came to die. Hear the angel's song and remember that death would be the only way that peace would be given. Look at your tree and remember another tree, one not decorated with shining ornaments, but stained with the blood of the Son of God. As you celebrate, remember that the pathway to your celebration was the death of the one you celebrate, and be thankful. 
Brothers and sisters, let us rejoice and be thankful for what God has so graciously given us in the gift of his beloved son. Let us pray.